China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Picking Knowledge, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Ku Tian Zhang, an Assistant Professor of International Security at George Mason University. Today we'll be discussing her recent article, Cautious Bullying, Reputation, Resolve, and Beijing's Use of Coercion in the South China Sea. Kutian, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start, as I always do, by asking a question about your research background, and specifically, how did you become interested in this set of questions around maritime disputes, coercion, and, and economic statecraft? So I think this line of research goes way back, and it started actually when I was in my second year of grad school at MIT, which was around 2013. So I was taking a class on Chinese foreign policy and international political economy at the same time, and that was the time around when the South China Sea issue became quite hotly debated in the media as well as in the policy circle. So I was going through. Some of the research on economic sanctions, and happened to see extensive reports about China's use of bananas against the Philippines over the disputes in 2012, which was quite shocking to me because it really goes against what's the conventional wisdom in the literature on economic sanctions, which was mostly done or focused on Western democracies, for example, the United States, or sanctions imposed by the UN, etc. So they tend to be institutionalized and focusing on embargo, such as against、uh, North Korea or Iran, among other things. But what's puzzling to me was that China used bananas and was not a major kind of export from the Philippines to China. It's not even that important, and it's just a, a bunch of bananas. And China only just let them rotten in some of the ports without <laughs> even announcing that China imposed economic sanctions in the first place. So, so that sort of got me started with the project, which originally was. A paper that tries to explain when China is more or less likely to use economic sanctions against other states, since this is an ongoing and emerging、uh, kind of、uh, economic statecraft that China has been using more、uh, frequently. So that's sort of how it got started. But when I tried to delve deeper into the use of economic statecraft, and I realized that. In an empirical setting, states do not just choose between bananas or not bananas, or sanctions or no. They actually have an entire toolkit of、uh, statecraft to use, right? So ranging from diplomatic measures, these、uh, economic sanctions, or military coercion, and in the Philippines' case, use of civilian law enforcement、um, organizations or coast guard ships in that、uh, regard. So there's a whole spectrum、uh, of tools that states can use. So that really leads. Need to broaden the project into considering when, why, and how does China, in particular, engage in coercion writ large, as opposed to just focusing on、um, economic sanctions. And in the next couple of years, my entire dissertation is really revolving around the central question of、um, China's use of、uh, coercion. But the maritime case is one of the central case studies uh, in uh, my dissertation, just because it was one of the、um, most hotly debated. Issues about Chinese foreign policy in both the policy circle and、um, the academic circle, but it does all start from the bananas, as it does with everybody.、Um, I wanted to ask, just as your you just mentioned what your big upcoming research focus will be, but I wanted to ask in your specific niche, what are the big 
outstanding questions that either you or your colleagues have about either you know economic statecraft, maritime disputes? What are, what are the really big thorny questions or puzzles that that continue to drive your work? Um, this is a really good question, and I think um, and, and and I'm definitely not you know alone in the endeavor of trying to uh, examine China's use of economic statecraft or trying to link the issues related to international security with issues within the realm of international political economy, which means that what we traditionally consider was sort of a separation between the field of international security and the field of uh, international economy. But I think a growing trend in both academia and also as we see in sort of the empirical foreign policy conduct is the interconnectedness of the field of security and uh, economy. And that's sort of where I come from and hope to pursue further uh, in the future, which is really to analyze the effects or the potential effects of a globalized production and supply chain on how uh, rising powers might conduct their behavior and foreign policy in the future, and hopefully not just applicable to China, but also to other rising powers such as uh, India, uh, Brazil, uh, among other things. Because I think where there has been a debate on, um, you know, the Thucydides trap and lessons learned from the First World War or uh, even the Peloponnesian War, which I think is a valid debate. But at the same time, a lot of things have changed in the contemporary setting. And one of the major change, among other things, such as nuclear weapons, really is the different dynamics of the global um, economic interdependence, which is different from the dynamics that we see back in, say, the World War I period. Um, so that, I guess, my hypothesis is that it got to have some sort of impact on the behavior of rising powers, be it negative or positive. And coercion, I guess, is one slice of that behavior that may be impacted partially by the changing dynamics of um, the global economic interdependence, but uh, it's definitely not the only kind. And there are other scholars who work on a similar vein in regard to, you know, how a trade and uh, or how trade relations in the contemporary setting affect conflict relations what were dynamics, were uh, propensity, or even the level of conflicts engaged by uh, rising powers uh, such as China. And um, so that's sort of the first kind of um, big questions or theme that I'm working on. And the second kind is related to the first kind, but it's, I guess, uh, turning to, toward a different angle, which is work tends to focus uh, more on uh, China's res- decision-making rationale but I would also like to look at and examine how the target states perceive and respond to China's, be it coercion or economic inducement, among other things, because I think there are uh, variations with regard to how they respond and why, uh, especially with the domestic politics being different in different countries and the changing dynamics. And, and some scholars are also working on this realm, which is to, I think, push against the conventional wisdom that it's easy for um, target states to uh, just rise up against China and uh, for policy recommendations that, for example, Southeast Asia should just uh, uh, simply unite together against China. But I think that the story is a lot more complicated than that because of a lot of the domestic dynamics within the 
target countries of Chinese economic statecraft or other kinds of、um, statecraft. So hopefully, these are the two general areas that I'm going to be able to continue to work,、uh, especially after the pandemic ends, making it possible to travel to these、um, target countries. Those are two fascinating questions, and you can feel both of those rippling through the cautious bully article because I think the issue of which is I, I have a planted question I want to ask at the end, which is in the article you talk about the role of China's perception of economic cost to a given action, and of course interdependence may affect that or not. So this is actually a good time to ask you to just lay out the big thesis of the article, and just as a reminder for. Listeners, this appeared in the summer 2019 edition of International Security, which I have to give credit to International Security. It is a very affordable academic journal compared to many others, which cost twenty five thousand dollars. This is a steal, so、uh, recommend subscribing to, to International Security. What is the art? What is the argument you make? This is a really good title, which manages to capture in two words core component of the thesis: cautious bully. But what, why is China a cautious bully, and, and what does that mean? Credit of the title really goes to the editors at International Security. So I I don't think I'm as smart as them.、Um, but sort of in a nutshell, the article examines you know when, why, and how China coerces, and in particular focusing on the、um, uh, maritime issues or disputes in the South China Sea from、uh, 1990 to the present day. The major argument is、uh, twofold. So the first question I answer is when coercion is more likely, and I argue that coercion is more likely when the need to establish a reputation for resolve is high and the economic cost of coercing is low. And by the need to establish resolve or China's aim at establishing a reputation for being resolved and defending its、uh, sovereignty in the South China Sea. In other words, China does not want to be viewed as weak and not resolved, which they believe might lead other states to take actions in the、uh, or further in the future, which will further threaten China's perceived security in regard to maritime disputes in the South China Sea. And the economic cost really is concerns that China might lose market or、uh, supply from the target state if China does depend on the target for markets or supply. But the second question that I also try to explore really is what kinds of tools China is more or less likely to use because coercion is not just about military coercion; it's not just about missiles. And the argument here is China is more likely to use. Non-militarized coercion, if the perceived geopolitical backlash cost is high, and by geopolitical backlash, I really mean concerns that the target state might balance against China, and in particular by drawing in a third-party great power with whom the target state has military treaty alliance with. And in the maritime example, that would be Japan having alliance with the United States, or the Philippines having alliance with the United States. One of the interesting things that you do in this is you have a temporal exploration here, and you show that there's a, a change in behavior by Beijing, or Beijing's willingness to deploy or use coercion is not static over the past two decades. That you see this rise, fall, and rise again, and specifically the the time periods you use are, you know, the early to mid 1990s until 2000 ish. China showed a willingness to to use、uh, a coercion in response to actions by、uh, territorial disputants. This basically goes away from 2001 to 2006, where China doesn't use 
any coercion and then picks up again in 2007. And of course, I had the, the recent issue of International Security has a great article by Andrew Chubb, uh, which I think builds on this quite nicely. You, you see how this 2007 is really this key year. And just as a, um, I don't mean to connect this, but I'm actually noticing in lots of ways, 2006 is an important hinge moment for China. You see in the sort of technology industrial planning, you see 2006 as this kind of key year. I think there's a lot of things that were bubbling up or happening around 2006, 2007 that seem to show a uh, the emergence of a of a different type of of actor, but I wondered if we could go through those three time periods of nineties, two thousand to two thousand six, and then post two thousand seven, and if you could just explore and explain what's happening that is leading to this behavior. So first, let's just start with the nineteen nineties. One of your sub arguments is it is not the case that as China gets stronger, it will use more coercion because, as you show or you argue in the nineties, when it was relatively weaker than it was in the 2000s, it actually used less coercion. So why is that? What was happening in the 1990s that was leading China to uh, be more comfortable using coercion in some of these territorial disputes? Before I begin, I do also want to emphasize the, the recent article by Dr. Chubb, because it is a wonderful article explaining China's different types of assertiveness. And he has a really fascinating data set that goes back into the Cold War period, documenting China's uh, different usage of assertiveness in the um, maritime realm. And with regard to your question on what happened in the 1990s and why did China use military coercion, I think about half of the time uh, when it comes to dealing with you know issues in the South China Sea, one of the, I guess, major arguments were implications that I wanted to emphasize in uh, regard to this article is that it's not that China has suddenly become more assertive or coercive after 2010, but rather there has always been a baseline level of Chinese use of coercion because of different factors. So it's we're not seeing a dramatic change in China's foreign policy behavior, say post-2010, but rather this use of coercion is nothing new, and China has used it in the Cold War period and in the post-Cold War period that I'm exploring in this article. So it's not a, a new phenomenon. So the, the rationale for why there was more usage of coercion or military coercion in uh, the 1990s um, had to do with two factors. And, and the first one is, as I've laid out before, the need to establish resolve was uh, relatively high in the 1990s, especially the early to mid-1990s period, uh, both because of the physical actions that China perceived other states as doing or construct the land features that um, other states have occupied, for example, Vietnam and uh, the Philippines, but also China viewed that there was a greater effort on the part of, in particular, the Philippines and Vietnam with regard to what China calls internationalizing the South China Sea issue, i.e. making the dispute known by other states, especially in various um, multilateral platforms such as at the UN and at the regional ASEAN uh, meetings and, and, and conferences. So it's this combination of objective changes, i.e. increased incidents that China deemed as threatening its sovereignty in the South China Sea, as well as the uh, media coverage or exposure of these incidents that made China believe that the need to establish resolve was uh, was high. And some of the sources that I had would indicate that 
Uh, China believed that you know if uh, it does not take action, the others might continue, and which will further erode China's sovereignty uh, status in regard to the South China Sea, and especially the greater international media coverage. The more likely that、um, other states, especially disputants in the South China Sea, might be seeing these、um, uh, coverage, and if there's no action on the part of China, then they might, or at least China's concern is that they fear other states might believe that it's a green light for them to continue in the future. But the economic cost of、um, uh, coercing a, in regard to Southeast Asia was relatively low because the、um, Sino-Asian trade constituted a very small amount of overall Chinese、uh, trade volume at that time. In particular, I think China has not really started to open up its、um, economic relationship, especially trade with ASEAN countries, and because that's a sort of I think the aftermath of the Cold War、uh, period, when China doesn't really or didn't really trade that much with、uh, ASEAN countries in around that period, so the cost of coercing was low, and therefore we're seeing the use of coercion. But what's what separates、uh, China in the 1990s from the、uh, later periods, i.e., the post 2007 period,、uh, really is the kind of coercion that we're seeing、uh, when it comes to the South China Sea. So I'm not arguing that China is coercing、uh, less、uh, in the post 2007 period, but rather that even though we're seeing an increase in the frequency of Chinese coercion in、uh, the post 27 a、uh, 2007 period, but the Usage of military coercion decreased、uh, dramatically, but it's in the 1990s that we're actually seeing a relatively high frequency of using military coercion, or a significant、uh, portion of the the rationale has to do with the relatively benign or relatively lax security environment, especially the low geopolitical、uh, backlash cost、uh, about using military coercion,、um, because. 1991 and 1992 was right around the time when the United States decided to leave the Subic Bay, and especially pertaining to、uh, the Philippines in regard to、uh, renegotiating the、uh, Mutual Defense Treaty, etc. So the United States pulled out of the、uh, Subic Bay, and the Chinese government noticed. Both, I think, publicly and internally, about such a move, and believing that it created a geopolitical vacuum in which neither the Soviet Union, because it basically collapsed, and the United States was present in Southeast Asia, at least not as significantly as compared to the Cold War period. Uh, which China reads as a relatively free environment for a military coercion to take place, because there is a less of a concern that the United States will come to the aid to the Philippines if, say, China coerced the Philippines in around the mischief reef in、uh, 1994、um, and five. So that's sort of the situation in the 1990s. I just had a thought as you were you were talking, and I want to fast forward for a moment. One of the arguments you just made is okay, so. So two-way trade or economic integration with ASEAN is relatively low in the 1990s, which means that the economic cost of coercion in response to territorial disputes is low. One of the arguments is in the 2000s, and indeed, you know, Zhu Rongji is pushing for trade agreements and more interaction with ASEAN on the economic front. So now, all of a sudden, the cost is rising to China, or the economic cost is rising to China. Of using coercion, I'm I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but because I wanted to ask a question, then you show or you argue that,、um, and you've got this quote here,、um, 
China, you know, so starting around 2008, 2009, China came to believe that ASEAN depends more on China than vice versa. And so in that post-2007 period, suddenly China is a bit more willing to use coercion because, as you say, it feels like the economic balance has tipped over in China's favor. Now ASEAN is kind of economically dependent on China. It, it almost feels like there's some sort of smile curve at work here because no economic interdependence and the cost to China is low, so it's willing to use coercion. Then as it's ramping up economic interactions with China, it's a bit more cautious. But once it gets to a point where it feels like it has really robust economic interactions, counterintuitively to me, it now feels more comfortable to wield coercion because it feels like it's so integrated and the balance of power, economic power resides with it that it can. And this, of course, is what many Americans feel about China's economic interdependence. It's exactly. kind of weaponized. This is not my phrase, weaponized interdependence. And that feels like that's generalizable, right? That we could actually play that story out again and again of no economic interdependence, China's willing to, to bully a trend of increasing economic interdependence, China pulls back a little bit. And then once China feels like it has sufficient levels of integration and the balance is tipped in its favor and it has enough kind of leverage through interdependence, it feels comfortable wielding coercion. Does that make sense to you? Is there a pattern there? That is very aptly described what you just said. And I think this is in line with one of the other um, articles from International Security Weaponized Interdependence, which is nicely done by, I think, professors from Georgetown University. So I think I, by and large, agree with what you just said. And there is just a little bit of nuance in regard to also something that I wanted to imply in the article, which is the type of interdependence matters, right? And, and, and this is why I think the Southeast Asian case stands relatively, at least for the moment, in contrast to Sino-U.S. trade relationship or economic relationship writ large, which is in regard to Southeast Asian cases, China in the 2000s needed to establish new free trade zones to push for its market overseas. And ASEAN is or was the easiest, I guess, apple to pick in that regard, because all of the other free trade zone negotiations were with OECD countries, which had a much higher standard, and it's a lot harder for China to push through. And therefore, China needed a breakthrough uh, in regard to ASEAN. And that's why the economic stakes were high for China in that regard to care about coercion in the South China Sea. But what's interesting about the dynamics between uh, Southeast Asia and China economically is that uh, the kind of integration or interdependence in their either bilateral trade relationship between China and individual ASEAN countries or China and ASEAN writ large really is asymmetrical, what's called vulnerability interdependence that favors uh, China. So China has exit options in regard to, say, alternative supply or markets. And in particular, we can pit one ASEAN country against the other, i.e. even if China does not import bananas from the Philippines, it has alternative sources from maybe Thailand or some other countries that also produce bananas. So it's not something that China has absolutely needed to import from the Philippines. And in all honesty, um, some ASEAN countries, they're probably more than willing to compete with their competitors with regard to imports to China because it's just a huge market. So China has leveraged there in this kind of um, economic integration. 
But when it comes to the United States, I agree that there is trade conflicts and, and, and trade wars, especially in the last four years. But the dynamic is different in the sense that China still needs, at least for the moment, needs the United States for、uh, a lot of the technologies and market as well. So as supply and sort of the the external or overseas market to the United States is something that China cannot replace in a very short amount of time. So that's why the weaponized interdependence um article um argue that you know the United States still has leverage vis-a-vis、uh, China, especially in、uh, the financial sector which the United States、uh, dominates. And、uh, as hard as China wants to change the fact that the dollar dominates the world economy,、um, it is still a long way before、um, the Chinese currency is able to control, say, a significant amount of、um, trade volume or transaction rate. So China still has to use the swift cold for、uh, international transaction, and、um, the technology that China needs to produce is domestic automobiles or even aircraft are almost all, all exclusively foreign. So, for example, China、uh, imports from Japan, Germany, and the United States for key machineries that are the intermediary products to、uh, its、um, automobile production. Without which, they could not、uh, produce and、uh, the the end product. And even with Huawei, the cell phone company that has caught a lot of attention and controversy. A lot of the design portion of their cell phone, you know, is actually in I think California, and part of it is in I think Taiwan and、uh, South Korea in regard to the semiconductors among other things. So these sorts of economic integration、uh, that China has with I guess OECD or industrialized countries tend to be either balanced or with China having a little bit of disadvantage at the moment, and that's where you see frictions, but not as large of a scale as we might see in、uh, Southeast Asia. Because even if you observe China's announcement of sanctions, we're going to sanction Boeing or Lockheed Martin. But in reality, the China really didn't do anything. I'm not talking about the tit for tat kind of economic retaliation because that's not coercion. But say when it comes to issues related to weapon sales or Taiwan, China might engage in diplomatic sanctions, cutting senior level meetings. But they can't really do that much on the、um, economic front, except for maybe harassing U.S. companies operating、uh, in China. But they cannot engage in the relatively large scale of、um, we're just not buying stuff from you, or at least we're not buying、uh, key products, i.e.、Um, aircraft or、uh, certain kinds of technologies that China still still needs、uh, in, in the moment. It might change in the future. But、um, I think the dynamic of the trade relationship, or the overall economic relationship between China and OECD countries, differ quite significantly from those or、uh, vis-a-vis the smaller countries, so to speak, or Southeast Asia. Great points, and really,、uh, that was really fantastic analysis. I wanted to get through a few more questions here. I wanted to return back to in the paper. You had done a number of interviews with government officials and、uh, and analysts, government analysts, and I thought there was some interesting qualitative information that you got from these. And and one of them was, and this is you've mentioned this when you were laying out the argument for the article, but on how important it is for China to feel like it responds in cases when it has to credibly signal future signal deterrence. And an interesting subcomponent of that is sometimes when it's deploying coercion as a deterrent, it's not just or not limited to a deterrent for the country 
in which it's currently engaged in a dispute, but it sees this as a little bit fungible that in some some cases, use of coercion in one case actually has an eye towards a, a different dispute with a different country. So I wonder if you could just talk about this a little bit and some of the logic underlying these two dynamics. One is this kind of logic of coercion uh, uh, to signal a reputation for resolve, and then closely related to that, how it can use coercion in in one case to potentially deter a different country in a different part of the world in in a different dispute. So I think the logic here is China views one incident as not just one incident, but rather uh, possibly interconnected with any future incidents that might take place either in regard to the South China Sea or elsewhere, say, pertaining to uh, the um, uh, East China Sea uh, disputes with Japan. So the rationale here is one incident is larger than itself. And if China believes that um, this particular incident is somewhat like a last straw uh, built up on an increased uh, frequency of prior incidents and increased level of international media exposure, this one incident might be the final straw that China believes that it has to use coercion in order to what uh, some Chinese officials say, kill the chicken to scare the monkey i.e. to um, use this incident as an example to hopefully to demonstrate to the other potential perpetrators of actions that China does not like to signal to them that you do not want to behave like this target country did in this incident because if you do so, this is what you're going to get in the end just like them. So I guess the rationale here is not entirely different from what we usually see when it comes to coercion which is obviously to stop the action that the target state is currently doing in that particular incident. But what China did had an added layer, which is, uh, and and I would argue, a broader goal, uh, which really is to hopefully deter similar actions um, in the future. And and I think in the South China Sea case that I uh, identified in the article, there is evidence that analysts talked about the linkage with disputes uh, in the East China Sea as well, i.e. the use of coercion against the Philippines in 2012 was at least partially aimed at hopefully sending a signal to Japan in regard to the East China Sea. But of course, whether the signals are well received, i.e. the effectiveness of it, I think it's another question. Sometimes it's not necessarily or 100% received, or it might have to do with the domestic politics of the target state. Uh, but at least the intention of China using coercion is uh, such that it hopefully, or it hopes to deter future actions. What I found really interesting about that comment in the article, which of course struck me as really interesting and of course makes sense when I stop and think about it, is I've always wondered how much of the saber rattling around Taiwan is unrelated to Taiwan and is part of China's efforts to signal credibility and resolve more broadly speaking. And, and I say that because it, it strikes me that if there is one area where China recognizes its, its military credibility is at stake, it is in the issue of Taiwan because it has put it so high and put it as such a national priority that in addition to the directly related response actions China takes in the Taiwan Straits, which are of the moment and of the day, I've always wondered if some part of that, some non-trivial part of that is, this is the most important area of which China's credibility is on the line. 
because it is it has put so much stock in the Taiwan issue, which gets to your comment on how they were looking to the East China Sea, even as they were using coercion in the South China Sea. So anyway, it's just a, a tangential, a tangential thought. So l- let me just go to my final few questions here, which is, as you were summing up, you wrote, China is a cautious coercer. It does not coerce frequently. Now, I know, of course, in the case of this article, you're talking about a specific type of coercion in a specific geographical area. But my first thought, and I wrote in the margin notes, is, you know, a 2019 article is written in the years before, you know, so you're working on this in 2017. I was wondering if if the if the Kutianjong of 2020, 2021 still holds that view that China coerces infrequently. And I'm thinking, of course, as we were talking before we recorded, if I was sitting in Australia, I don't think I would be saying China coerces infrequently. I would be feeling the full blunt of it. It actually feels like there's been an uptick in China's use of, of, of coercion across the board. So I'm wondering, does that thesis still hold? And then related to that, I, I wanted to ask if you could project forward. We're going to have the 20th Party Congress next year. I will bet my professional reputation that Xi Jinping is still general secretary when we get through the 20th Party Congress. Does a third term Xi Jinping foreign policy still remain a, a cautious coercer or a cautious bully? Or, or do you think do you think this could change? I think the first part to your you know question on what's happening um, currently is, I, I guess, twofold. The first part really is I've yet to um, calculate the um, entire, I guess, pool of um, incidents that China considers to be challenging its security in one way or another. So the context of uh, my um, sort of claim in in the article that China coerces infrequently um, is not that China does not coerce, where we're not seeing an increase of Chinese coercion in terms of just sheer numbers, but rather the coercion to incidents ratio that has stayed relatively stable over the past 30 years. That applies mostly to South and East China Seas and the issues related to Dalai Lama, which China considers to be a national security issue as well, but not so much Taiwan because Taiwan is different. It's a, a core interest. It's just a, on a, the highest interest hierarchy. So the ratio is relatively stable, not that we're seeing any decrease of numbers and we're not. The absolute number of Chinese use of coercion is definitely on the rise. And um, if you include just the absolute numbers, it definitely is greater than uh, back in the 1990s. But that said, the ratio is relatively, or stays, at least in the South China Sea, even counting toward the current period, stays around, say, 30 to 40%. Uh, so in other words, China is selective in terms of whom it chooses to coerce and whom it does not coerce. And, and, and we're seeing China coercing Malaysia uh, less frequently, even though it does coerce, partially because uh, it believes Malaysia is relatively silent in regard to the South China Sea issue, at least on the international media exposure aspect of things. But of course, it does change uh, a little bit why Mahathir went into an office using the South China Sea as kind of a focal point or rally around the issue uh, to use. Um, So I guess first point here is that how China behaves, especially in terms of frequency, depends on uh, partially on the target states. Uh, behavior where China's perceived behavior of the target state. Um, so if I were to make some hypothesis 
or relatively educated guess about the Australia case is that there is a greater media exposure、uh, in regard to、um, the relations between China and Australia and sort of Australia's public statements、uh, with regard to China's actions. That might、um, make China view that it's putting its、um, resolve on the line. In particular, I think China views Australia as traditionally more of a moderate country that is obviously a U.S. ally, but is not, say, the closest U.S. ally in terms of following U.S. critique、uh, directly after a certain、uh, Chinese behavior or action. In other words,、uh, China seems to believe Australia to be a little bit more muted、uh, before, at least、um, in terms of the. Media exposure statements,、um, etc.、Um, so that a relative change might lead China to believe that the need to establish resolve、um, is greater. So we might be seeing、um, greater frequency of coercion vis-a-vis middle-income countries and Australia, as an example. But also New Zealand, etc.、Um, and the second layer,、uh, I think, to this trend that we're observing. Goes back to the、um, economic interdependence that we we're talking about earlier. That I actually had in a chapter of my book project on China coercing on、uh, Dalai Lama related issues is that China did not coerce、uh, Australia as much back in the、um, uh, 2007 to 2010 period. Because it was an important、uh, liquefied natural gas source for China, the LNG. I think import、um, it constituted as one of the top five sources of Chinese LNG import to China, and the economic dynamic、uh, seemed to be changing. And as I was、uh, reviewing the data, the portion of Australian LNG import to China I think decreased quite dramatically over the past ten、um, uh, years. So、uh, there might be another layer, which is the the decreased economic. Uh, dependence, or especially in critical sectors of the Chinese economy, energy, for example, might also explain the increased use of coercion against、um, uh, Australian, be it officials or more so in the、uh, diplomatic slash、um, economic sanctions realm. And of course, Australia is an influential country, at least in the you know the, in the Western world. And China, I think, might view Australia as a good sort of、um, example to set because. Obviously, China cannot coerce the United States effectively all the time, just because again the economic interdependence is not to China's advantage at the moment. But Australia is a middling country, a major power that has influence, and 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 therefore sort of choosing Australia or Canada in the previous two years are sort of、um, I guess from China's perspective good examples to 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 set because they're middling countries. That China does not have an extensive economic asymmetry with, but at the same time has a certain level of influence. So we're sort of seeing a combination of greater exposure as well as a decreased economic dependence on the part of China. And so what that means in the future, you know, where we're going to see most conflict or or frictions is decoupling or the scenario where China has an advantage in、uh, the economic relationship in that it does not depend on the target for markets or supply, but the target actually depends on China for markets, where it's relatively difficult for the target state to find、um, alternative. A market where where supply in a relatively short、uh, period of、uh, time. So the in terms of the future trajectory of China's behavior, I do worry because of the current economic dynamic,、um, which is、um, unfortunately aided further by the global pandemic. 
The Chinese government has pushed really hard in the past, uh, well, starting from around 2007, but I think it manifested more saliently in, in, in the last two years, which is the notion of internal circulation or dual circulation with a focus on internal circulation. So I think what that means really is Xi Jinping's push to uh, try to move China more into a domestic innovation-driven economy and domestic consumption-driven economy, right? So that's sort of why there is a notion of internal circulation. I don't think China has reached that goal yet, and it might be quite some time before China is able to achieve that goal. But if this trend continues, and especially if, say, major OECD countries use China's behavior as an excuse to further decouple from the Chinese economy, then we might be seeing a China in the future that's more autarkic and uh, stronger with its domestic innovation and capability. And I think that's when it's uh, really uh, worrying because that's when you might see a less restrained China willing to use coercion more frequently because it does not have uh, as much of a, a cost related. So that's sort of the economic concern, which means that in terms of you know policy implications, it might not be the best course to completely decouple from China because it might further embolden China in, in, a, in the future because it has nothing to lose from the target country or, say, the United States. But the other layer to this uh, question about China's coercion frequency and also the kinds of coercion that we're going to be seeing in the future might have to do with the stance, posture, and actions on the part of the United States. Because I think one mitigating factor, at least that creates stability, is a continuous U.S. presence in the Asia-Pacific region, especially a clearly defined red line or commitment to U.S. allies in the region. Of course, this does not mean that the United States um, has to challenge or has to um, either take a stance on um, a sovereignty in the South China Sea or say, uh, counter China militarily in an act active way uh, when it comes to territorial disputes, but rather that the United States does need to signal both to China and its allies that it's uh, here to stay, right? It is maintaining a presence here in the region, be it militarily, diplomatically, or um, economically, um, because if not, it might make it uh, easier for China to use military coercion. And I think the Sino-Indian dispute is one example, because that dispute is uh, where we're seeing contemporary Chinese military coercion, where the use of military uh, means much more so as compared to the uh, maritime disputes. And part of the reason has to do with China's belief that the United States does not really care that much about India as compared to at least Southeast Asia or, or East Asia. And if we're following the similar trend, and I think there are reports from analysts in China that reads uh, President Trump's policy in regard to the South China Sea as going back and forth and not as committed or even clear. And, and that would be sending a negative signal to China, which might make China believe that, well, it's okay for us to do more in, in, in the region, which may in turn lead to greater instability, which is, I think, something that neither country wants to see. So I think the bottom line on future trajectory is to be cautious about the economic trajectory of China and the um, sort of U.S. presence uh, in uh, the Asia-Pacific region, I think part of which depends both on China's domestic politics and U.S. domestic politics. That was a really great analysis. And, you know, that's a point you made at the very conclusion of your article where you said the study shows that China uses the U.S. statements 
and past actions in assessing U.S. alliance commitment to Asia-Pacific, whether and how the U.S. gets involved in the South China Sea dispute significantly affects China's decisions regarding the use of coercion, China's use of military coercion in the 1990s against the Philippines in Vietnam after the U.S. withdrawal from Subic Bay provides a useful example. You know, my final thought on the analysis you just made on the issue of autarky or increasing autarky may put China in a position where it doesn't have much to lose in the use of coercion. But this just presents a really thorny conundrum for us because it seems like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. China clearly understands that market access in China and integration and interdependence with the global economy is arguably its greatest geopolitical tool. Xi Jinping has frequently talked about the gravitational pull of the Chinese market as being an important geopolitical tool, and we've seen Beijing wield market access. So it, it strikes me that both of those are true and challenging. You're right. If China isolates, that means the cost to it from from potentially belligerent behavior goes down. But uh, an integrated China is what's concerning lots of countries now because it feels like once China gets its tenter hooks in you economically, it can now um, manipulate and, and and wield that as leverage. And indeed, to be fair, so does the United States. I mean, one of the reasons we sanction the heck out of everybody is because everyone's dependent on the U.S. dollar. So weaponized interdependence is, of course, something that lots of powers use, not just China. But I think the worry is when the United States sanctions someone, it's through a, an institutionalized process. Interestingly, I think China is doing more of this. It announced sanctions somewhat institutionalized through through an MFA press conference where it said it was sanctioning Canadian, uh, uh, UK, uh, EU officials. So that's, I guess, a step towards this. But I suspect, as someone told me the other day, lawfare may become a, an increasing tool that China uses. So, so kind of moving to a US approach of using institutionalized means to coerce, in addition to the informal toolkit it has of saying there's pest control problems, so we can't unload your bananas on the dock. I think that will never go away. But anyway, the the, the point being, there's no clear answers here. And what you've laid out just points to how interesting an area of analysis uh, what you're doing is, this intersection of national security, foreign policy, economic statecraft, coercion, gray zone, these are all, I fear, you know, the battlegrounds of of so much conflict moving forward, which is just another reason to say I really look forward to reading your, your work and just have learned so much already from your writings. And so appreciate your time and, and really appreciate your very clear, compelling analysis. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening and, and see you on the next podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.